So we are in the middle of chapter 2 of Colossians now. And the last time we were together, we talked about in, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, this first part, right? So, so chapter 2, 6 to 23, is this uh, kind of this middle section of the letter where Paul is finally getting to uh, the, the, the primary purpose of his letter, which is to really highlight the sufficiency of Christ for pursuing maturity, spiritual maturity. And in verses 6 to 15, he's, he's, he's highlighting how Christ is fully sufficient for everything that the Colossians need and that we need. And then in verses 16 to 23, this is the most sustained part of the letter where he's going to talk specifically about those things that are, uh, that are insufficient, those things that, uh, that maybe there's this, this uh, errant teaching in Colossae, from, whether it's from one set of teachers or, or multiple different perspectives, uh, who, who are proposing, here are all of these other ways that you should grow spiritually or that you should relate to God or you should grow into spiritual maturity. Um, but, but they're all insufficient. They're all empty. Right? Paul talked in verse 8 of chapter 2. Right? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And so... 6 to 15 is the full sufficiency of Christ. 16 to 23 is the empty insufficiency of everything that isn't according to Christ. So this is really the, 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 the main place in the letter where we get um, a snippet of what it is that the Colossians are dealing with. But he doesn't come out and just say it's these particular people or it's this particular idea. He just, he just kind of says, here are some things that you might be hearing that are empty and insufficient for your spiritual life, all right? So there's, there's three sections or three ideas uh, here. And, and verse 16, uh, we'll start with the word uh, therefore. So there's an explicit connection to the previous uh, section, right? So because Christ is sufficient for you, therefore... And then he's going to say all of these things are, are insufficient. So I've got it broken down into three sections here. Verses 16 and 17, 17 deal with the insufficiency of legalism. 18 and 19 deal with the insufficiency of mysticism. And uh, 20 to 23 deal with the insufficiency of asceticism. And we'll talk about a little bit about what all of those things mean as we go. But in each section, there's, uh, there's a problem that's being addressed. There's a command that Paul gives about how the Colossians are to respond to that. And there's a reason why that's how they're to respond. All right? So you can be on the lookout for that as we go. So verse 16, therefore, so because Christ is sufficient, no one is to act 
as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this is about the insufficiency of legalism. So the problem in this in verses 16 to 17 is, is legalism. So legalism uh, has been defined before as uh, uh, taking your elective and making it somebody else's requirement, right? Uh, and, and there's more nuance that we could, we could put into that, but that's a good way to, to kind of summarize it. Something that you choose to do that you make a requirement for somebody else, okay? Legalism is often expressed in four ways. Avoidance, observance, compulsion, and judgment. Okay? Avoidance, observance, compulsion, and judgment. So avoidance, legalism demands the avoidance of certain things. Right? And so here we would see it in... Um, People uh, are, are, are judging the Colossians in regard to food or drink. Uh, this is probably a reference to, to the Jewish food laws. Uh, and so there are people, probably uh, people who, who have Jewish background uh, or are practicing Jews in Colossae who are, uh, and maybe even people who are dabbling in Christianity who are saying, you have to observe all of these laws in order for you to be saved. Right? You have to avoid these certain foods or these certain uh, drinks in order for you uh, to be saved. So it demands an avoidance of something. You see this in 1 Timothy 4 uh, where Paul is addressing uh, something similar. And he says, there, there are these people who are devoted to the doctrine of demons who demand uh, avoiding uh, the partaking of certain foods and, and uh, demand that you abstain from marriage. And so there are these very specific requirements that you have to avoid these things uh, in order to be godly or to be uh, spiritually uh, mature, and Paul calls it the doctrine of demons. So that's generally not a good place to be. So avoidance, it demands the avoidance of certain things. Observance, it also demands the observance of other things. It says you need to avoid this, but you have to do this. Right? And now we see that here, that there are people who are uh, demanding that they avoid food or, or drink or uh, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Again, these are probably references to things from the Jewish law. Festivals would be uh, annual rituals something like the Passover or uh, the Feast of Booths or all the different kind of feasts that we read about would demand that, well, you have to be observing this day. Uh, or a, a new moon, that's a monthly ritual. Or the Sabbath, that's the weekly ritual. And, uh, and, and you can see, even in the, the ministry of Jesus, how these things became legalistic for the Pharisees. 
right? Because the Pharisees had this elaborate list of things that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath that actually weren't in the Bible. But they said, well, we want to really make sure that we're extra pleasing to God, so we're going to make sure we, we uh, write a list so that we don't come close to violating the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you've missed the point entirely, right? And then in Romans 14, Paul says, one person thinks one day is more important than the others, and he's probably referring to people who want to observe the Sabbath. Another person thinks that all days are the same. Let everyone be convinced in his own mind. So he's, he says it's not one day over the, the others. Saying you don't need to observe it the same way that they did. But legalism demands you avoid this, you observe this, and then compulsion, legalism compels others to avoid and observe. In order to be godly, you must follow these rules. And judgment, legalism judges those who do not avoid and observe. So it only compels people to do it, but if they fail to do it, it judges them for it. All right? So this is the problem. People in, in Colossae are telling them, it seems here, that they need to observe certain aspects of the, the Jewish Mosaic law in order for them to grow in spiritual maturity, in order for them to have uh, the, the, the fullness of the Spirit or to grow in godliness. Um, they need to be doing these things in addition to having Christ. So the command, so if that's the problem, then the command is uh, no one is to act as your judge in regard to these things. Really, probably better, don't let anyone act as your judge. Because right? it's, a, it's, a, it's a command, it's an imperative. So this makes it sound more passive. I think you say, no, don't let anybody judge you because you eat or drink or don't eat or drink these things, or because you do or don't observe these certain days, don't let anybody judge you for that. And interestingly, in, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul goes out of his way to tell them to accept one another uh, regardless of what their opinion was on these kind of uh, uh, disputable matters. Uh, and and he, he emphasizes if you're strong in your faith, if you have a strong conscience and you feel like you, you can partake of things because of your freedom in Christ, or you're, you're not compelled to do other things because of your freedom in Christ, bear with those who, who don't have the same freedom, who don't feel the same freedom, and uh, welcome them and don't pass judgment on them. Right? Now, he says something a little bit different here. Right? He, he doesn't say, well, just be patient with them because they don't know better. He says, don't let them judge you. So I think the situation is different. I think in Romans, the situation is there are people who have legitimate um, uh, issues of conscience where for them to, to partake or not partake or so, would lead them to sin uh, and, and sin against their conscience. And, and so Paul says, don't, do your best to not put a stumbling block in their way. You have freedom in Christ, so you know that you can do these things, but for their sake, choose to use your freedom not to do them so that they don't sin. 
Here, I think the situation is there are people who are, who are they're, they're not just talking about disputable matters, they're undermining the gospel by saying, if you do this or if you don't do this, you can't be saved, you can't grow, you don't have enough. Um, you, you, you're missing the secret knowledge that we have, and this is the real way that you grow. This is the real way that you get close to God, and Paul has no patience for that, right? Because he's adding something to the finished work of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, and he, he doesn't say be patient with them. He says don't let them judge you. So it's a di- I think it's a different situation. It calls for a different response, right? Um, I think... An example, we could, we could multiply different examples of this. Um, the, the, the classic example is drinking alcohol in moderation. Okay? So, if Paul were talking to a person in, in Romans 14 and 15, he'd be saying, listen, if there's somebody who, who struggles with drinking alcohol in moderation, that they struggle to not drink it in moderation, and it leads them into sin or whatever, you choose to not partake for their sake so that you don't cause them to stumble because they would legitimately sin against their conscience by doing that. I think the situation in Colossians 2 would be somebody who doesn't necessarily have any history of drinking uh, but self-righteously judges others as being less Christian because they think that uh, being godly, they think that being uh, a devoted follower of Jesus means uh, radical commitment and allegiance to Jesus plus not drinking alcohol, right? So it's this Jesus plus type of spirituality, right? And so and as a result, they demand that others must adhere to the list of rules that they have adopted for themselves, and then they judge when other people don't measure up. Some of us probably experienced this. Some of us have probably done this. Right? I think I have. Now, before you say, boy, it's really good. I'm not one of those self-righteous people. I want you to think about yourself. Uh, I want you to think about any time this thought enters your head. I can't understand how a person could be a Bible-believing Christian and blank, and fill in the blank, okay? And there's all sorts of things that you could fill in the blank with, right? Drink alcohol, smoke, get a tattoo, listen to secular music, read Harry Potter, see an R-rated movie, vote for that candidate. And I want you to think about why you put that thing in the blank, and if that thing is there because it's actually in the Bible, or if it's there because that's what you have thought, and it's your maybe personal application of something that you see in the Bible, but it's not so explicit that you can make it a rule for somebody else. Because I think we all do this. I think I do it. So I constantly have to go back and say, Am I actually adding something to Scripture by making something a requirement for somebody that's not actually there? So what's the, what's the reason that Paul says, don't let them judge you? How, how is it that we can be free from this legalism? He says, don't let anybody judge you regard to food or drink, respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, because these things, 
So all of these things up here are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So if we're looking, if we're thinking of these things, I think specifically here we're talking about things that were in the Jewish uh, religious practice, the, the Mosaic law. Um, we're talking about rules and ceremonies um, that were that Paul says well, those are fine, but they were a shadow of the things to come. Christ is the substance; He's the fulfillment of all of those things. Right? So, uh, the writer of Hebrews uses similar language. Hebrews ten, one. He says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. The law was just foreshadowing what was going to come. Christ is the fulfillment of what the law foreshadowed. So the law is good, but it's just a shadow. It's just a preview. Christ is the fullness and the fulfillment. And so to bow to these legalistic demands, to allow yourself to be judged and therefore to, uh, to submit yourself to, to uh, obeying these things, to these man-made religious rules, is foolish because it's like saying, we want to go back to before Christ came. And that's how we're going to find spiritual maturity, is by going backwards to something that has reached its fulfillment. It's like when, you, uh, when there's, there's a, a movie that you're anticipating seeing and you watch the trailer over and over again, maybe I'm the only person that does this, uh, and you get really excited for it, and then you go see the movie, and then you want to say, yeah, but I really want to go back and watch the trailer again. Now, occasionally, the trailer's better than the movie. <laughs> so in that, in that case, then I would do that. Um, but, but it doesn't make sense to, to do that, right? I mean, you, why would you go back when the fulfillment is there? He's saying, you don't have to let anybody judge you because all of these things have been fulfilled in Jesus, right? The food and drink is really easy. Jesus declared all foods clean. And so for you to, to go back and think, I have to eat this certain way and this is how God's pleased with me is for you to completely contradict something that the Lord himself said. Says that don't don't bow to these things. You don't need that. Second, it's the insufficiency of mysticism. Verses eighteen and nineteen. So, um, mysticism or spiritualism or, or something like that would be a, a different type of religious system or system of spirituality, but rather than focusing on rules of avoidance and observance, its focus is on having particular spiritual experiences as the defining mark of spiritual maturity. Now, this is not to say that spiritual experiences are wrong or bad, right? Our faith, our Christianity should be experiential right? We should experience God because Christianity is not merely an intellectual set of beliefs or a, a, an ethical code. It's a relationship with a living being who can be experienced, right? Now, 
the danger is when we start making it uh, necessary for people to experience him in certain particular ways as evidence of spiritual maturity, right? Or when we begin to manufacture those experiences, right? We, we whip people up into a fervor and emotion and get them to experience certain things, or we begin to rely on those experiences as the basis for our faith, or we think that we're more spiritual than other people because we have some experience that they don't, or we think that we're less spiritual because we don't have certain experiences that other people do and say that we should. You catch all that? So let's look, verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause in his fleshly mind. That seems like a good place to be. So what are the characteristics of, of, of this particular aspect of uh, what what the Colossians are, are dealing with. He says these people are delighting in self-abasement. Uh, this could also be uh, false humility. Um, the word is actually uh, not inherently a negative word. It just means humility, but in the context, it's, it's rightly viewed as in, in, in a negative light. So it's a, a false humility to appear humble, but actually to be quite proud. We'll see how that's related to what comes afterwards. They're delighting in self-abasement or false humility and the worship of angels. This could be one of two things. Uh, it could mean that they are worshiping angels uh, as some kind of intermediary uh, that people are saying you need to actually worship these other spiritual beings in addition to God or in order to get to God, right? So it's possible that it means that. It also could mean um, that they uh, are worshiping uh, with the angels in the sense that they're saying, you know, if we're caught up in these heavenly visions, we actually get to, you know, go and worship with the angels. We have this this really uh, uh, amazing worship experience where we're actually lifted up and worship, you know, with the angels as opposed to everybody else who's got their feet flat on the ground. Um, I don't know which one I think it is. It could, it could be either one. Um, I, I guess I kind of lean towards the second one because he just, he talks in the next phrase about the visions that they claim to have. But Paul's also said a couple times in, in, in Colossians how Christ is the authority over the rulers and authorities, right? These other spiritual beings. And so it could be a reference to someone saying that there are these other beings out there that deserve your devotion or veneration. But Paul has already said, well, that's nonsense because Christ is the Lord of them. So why would you worship them and not him? Regardless of either, either one that it is, it's, it's um, talking about a, a, a kind of spiritual experience that Paul says is, is worthless. And then taking his stand 
on visions he has seen. Uh, taking his stand can also be translated. This is kind of a hard word, and I think probably better it means going into detail about visions he has seen. Either one could be uh, co a correct translation. I think the, the idea of going into detail makes more sense. Um, so these people are, are challenging the Colossians saying, but listen to all of the amazing stuff that we've seen. God gave me this vision. Right? God told me this, which incidentally I would recommend if somebody tells you God told me this, the next thing out of their mouth ought to be a quotation from the Bible. Otherwise, I would be much more comfortable if they were to say, I feel like the Lord has impressed me with this or something like that. Something that's a bit more nuanced. I generally don't recommend that people walk around saying God told me this. I think it gives the wrong impression. Paul had visions, okay? He said in, in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had a vision of heaven, right? He's caught up to heaven, had a vision of heaven, and he heard things that he cannot tell. And that's all we know about it. That's all he can tell us. And actually, in 2 Corinthians, he says... This happened 14 years ago. It doesn't seem like he talked about it much. He, he doesn't even say that it was him. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Right? Now, we know from a little bit later in the passage that he's really talking about himself, but he won't even say that it was him. These false teachers are, are doing something different, right? They're going around telling everybody, this is, listen to this vision I saw and going into detail about it. Or if we, if we take it as it's in the, in the NAS, taking his stand on it, he's saying, this is going to be the foundation of my faith now, is that I had this vision and now I can be sure. Or this is what God told me. I believe that God can and does use things like dreams and visions to reveal things because that's what I see in the Bible. Right? I see God do that, so God absolutely can do that, can provide guidance and, and reveal circumstantial information, but I think that's the exception rather than the norm. And I think that's because I think in Scripture it's the exception rather than the norm. The only reason we might think it's the norm is because Scripture is reporting these extraordinary experiences where God moves in very amazing ways. So while God can do it, we're not instructed to expect Him to do it. We're not commanded to seek it from Him. And so what Paul is saying in Corinthians is, don't let anybody insist on this. Don't let these people go on and on about these things, because in all likelihood, it's not something from Christ. I do think it's interesting the difference. Paul has this, this legitimate experience, this vision from God, and he doesn't say anything about it. 
These people are more than happy to walk into church and say, listen to this. And they're inflated without cause by their fleshly minds, which is how we know that this is all bogus. They're proud. And so they're inflated without cause, and they're not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. So they've been taken captive according to something that's not Christ. So they claim all sorts of spiritual experiences, but in the end they miss the mark because they're devoid of Christ. And so then the command that Paul gives because of of dealing with, with this form of spirituality is let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. And the idea of defrauding you of your prize, it's actually one word in in Greek. It could just mean um, disqualify you, or it it could be just uh, as another way of talking about judging you uh, with the the connotation of uh, judging or deciding against somebody so as to disqualify them from a race or a contest, right? So this is sort of an athletic term. If you don't compete according to the rules, you get disqualified. And so it's like these people are saying, here's the rule, you need to have this experience, uh, and and if you don't, then you're not really a Christian, or you're not really spiritual, or you don't really know God. It says, don't let people do that. And the reason, he says, because Christ is the true source of spiritual growth, right? They're not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. So, the head, Christ, from whom the whole body grows with a growth which is from God. So no one can tell you you need this extra spiritual, this extra thing for spiritual knowledge because in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And no one can tell you you need this extra thing for spiritual power because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And you don't need, uh, no one can tell you you need this extra thing for spiritual growth because it's from Christ that the whole body grows with a growth that's from God, or a godly growth. Growth that comes apart from Christ, out of connection to Christ, might be growth, but it's not growth from God. It's not growth that matters, right? There's a type of growth that's not natural and is harmful to people. It's cancerous, right? It won't give you life. It will suck your life away, and that's what Paul is saying. These people might be growing, but they're growing in the wrong way. Right? They're, they're inflated without cause. They're growing a spiritual tumor because of this. Christ is the source of growth. It is Christ who supplies everything that's necessary to grow with the growth from God. So you don't need all this other stuff. And third... 
the insufficiency of asceticism. Now, this one is a little bit different. It may not be really a different thing so much as it's an expression, a type of expression, either of legalism or mysticism. Okay? So asceticism just means severe treatment of the body. Right? And he, he gets into that down here. Right? And, and this practice could have in its root a legalistic mindset, like I need to avoid this thing uh, in order to um, in order to be godly, uh, or it could have uh, mysticism as its as its root, uh, and that would be something like in 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 order to have a spiritual a particular spiritual experience, you need to. Um, fast from all this stuff or you need to, to have this kind of harsh uh, spiritual uh, regimen in order to uh, purify yourself to become worthy of receiving this experience from God. This is actually uh, what uh, the Roman Catholic mystics in the Middle Ages would say. Right? They would say, first you need to purge yourself of all this sin through these ascetic practices where you, you know, are are making sure that you are depriving yourself of all of these, these things, and, and then you can start ascending into this experience with God, and then you, and you, and you, you end at a place of union with God at the very end. Whereas the gospel says, no, union with Christ starts the Christian life, and then everything else comes from there. It's not the end, it's the beginning. And so the, the, that, that kind of a, of a, of a mystical uh, mindset actually flips the gospel on its head. It, says it starts with you cleansing yourself from sin and ends with you being united to God. That's not the gospel. So whatever, and it might be both that, that Paul's envisioning these things coming from because they, they, there's kind of elements of both that are included here. Uh, he's, he's talking about a, a particular practice of uh, treating uh, your body harshly. Um, if it has to do with legalism, it, it may be because of a misunderstanding that people have about one of Jesus' teachings, right? Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me. And But we misread it or we mishear it because you would think that the way that people practice it, it says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself these certain things. Take up his cross daily and follow me. But that's not what it says. What's to be denied is not certain things to yourself. What's to be denied is self. Right? It's, the, it's that fundamental confession that says, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. It's not saying I'm not going to allow myself to have this or that or to do this or that. I think there's absolutely a place for fasting in the Christian life, but it's for a different purpose than that, right? Than punishing yourself for something or trying to purge yourself of something. So sometimes limitations like that are appropriate and necessary and they can, and they can promote uh, godliness, but I don't think that's the idea here.
If it's mysticism, it could be something like fasting. Fasting would be used in preparation for having these uh, mystical experiences, which incidentally, if you go for a long time without eating, you will have a spiritual experience, but we call those hallucinations. Um, that's not God. But whatever the, the case, Paul is saying, don't, don't, let them, uh, don't let them pressure you into practicing these things. Now, he doesn't say it as a command here. He, he kind of asks it as a question, right? So he says, if you've died with Christ, the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, so why do you submit yourself to decrees? Which is a way of him saying, don't submit yourself to decrees. Don't submit yourself to these rules that these people are saying, whether it's from a mystical foundation or a legalistic foundation, both of them are, are promoting you uh, with these certain ascetic practices. Why do you submit yourself to this? Don't, don't do it. Uh, whatever the case, whether it's legalistic or mystic or, 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 or both, Paul says that there's a danger that what they are doing is actually bowing in submission to rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Right? So we put it in quotation marks because this is kind of what they're hearing from these teachers. Right? They're hearing people say, you can't handle this, you can't taste that, you can't touch that. It sounds very much like the kind of Jewish regulations related to the food laws, and so there may be more of an underlying, uh, underlying idea of legalism here. Although here in verse 20, it talks about how they've died to the, to the elementary principles of the world, which we talked about last time, could also be translated the elementary or elemental spirits of the world. They may have more of a kind of a supernatural beings connotation. So it might be both. It may be ambiguous on purpose as Paul's trying to address both. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, this is a wonderful example of why we must read the Bible in context. Okay? There is a hymn that is based on this verse. And I'm not joking. There really is. Who hath sorrow? Who hath woe? They who dare not answer no. They whose feet uh, to sin incline. They who tarry at the wine. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Wine will make a dark, dark blot. Like an adder it will sting and at last to ruin bring. Now the problem is, the hymnist is combining something that's true from Proverbs, saying, if you abuse this, it's going to ruin you. And he's tying it to this verse. But if he actually read the context of this verse, say, Paul is actually saying, don't listen to people who say this. Right? So, these people are saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't taste this, you can't touch that. Paul says, no, don't listen to them. Paul's actually mocking the false teachers. And the command then is, 
don't submit yourself. So the problem is this asceticism. The command is don't submit yourself to this. And the reason, he actually gives two reasons. One, uh, you've died with Christ. Now, particularly when we see this word decrees, this idea of we died with Christ takes us back to what we looked at the, in the last lesson in 2, like 13 and 14, right? That the, the record of decrees against us uh, in the law, uh, he made you alive, having forgiven all our transgressions, canceling the certificate, the certificate of debt consisting of its decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So if you've died with Christ, that is, because uh, you are in Christ, what's true of him is true of you, he died, therefore uh, you died. And if you died with him, if his death counts for yours, then you don't need to submit to these things. Because he fulfilled them for you, and he bore the punishment that was due to you for not fulfilling them. So you're free from that. So one, you died with Christ, the debt's been paid, why would you go back and try to pay something that's already been paid? It doesn't make any sense. Right? But this is a subtle tactic of Satan. To, to make you think that you have to pay God back for forgiven sin. That God said, I'm going to pay the debt that you owe, but now you need to pay me back for it. And I, I'm a generous uh, loaner, and so I'll, uh, I'll uh, loan you this, and maybe I'll do it even without interest, but you have to pay me back. So a lot of people think about their relationship with God is now God forgave me. Now I have to spend the rest of my life paying him back for it. That's not the way the gospel works. We're obedient to God out of love and gratitude to him for what he's done, but not because we have to pay him back for it. That's legalism. Because you still think I need to earn something from God. I need to, I need to pay him back because, wow, he was so generous to me. So I need to pay him back for it. That's not how it works. So the first reason you don't submit to these things is because you've died with Christ. Right? So don't submit to decrees. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They all refer to things destined to perish with use. And so it's partly what Jesus said in, in, in Mark when uh, he declared all foods clean. He says, what you put into you can't defile you. It just goes in and out. It doesn't defile you. Right? They're to perish with you. So he's, probably taught, he's thinking about food. These people say, don't, don't eat this food. The food can't make you unclean. The food can't make you sinful. Right? In accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. And so this is just what men are telling you to do. We're adding, now we're adding rules to what God has said. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement. This is false humility again. And severe treatment of the body, but are of no value 
against fleshly indulgence. So, so Paul doesn't mince words. He says, these things appear to be really religious, really important for you to do, really, they, they, they make you appear to be spiritual, but they actually are worthless. And that's not to say that there aren't things that we are to do and things that we're commanded to do. And we're going to get to that in the next chapter. He's going to give us lots of things that are to characterize us as believers, that we're to pursue. But it's going to start from a place of recognizing that you've died and been raised with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And because of that, you can do these things. But without that all of these things that, that people are trying to tell you to do, they may appear to be really religious and really devout and really sincere, but they're of no value. So legalism, mysticism, asceticism, they're all counterfeit versions of spirituality. But Christ is the substance and the reality, and everything else is empty and insufficient. Everything else is going backwards. It's of no value. It doesn't actually result in true spiritual growth. Right? And like I said, you might get the impression, if you were to only read this, that, that the Christian life is actually one of just this unbridled freedom. Right? And that's not really the case. Like I said, there are commands that we're going to obey, but it's a gospel-driven obedience. It's one that starts with Jesus and continues with Jesus um, because you've died and been raised with Christ and you're living a resurrected life in the Son. And if that's the case, then we can start talking about, now this is what it looks like to live in such a way, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So as we move into chapter 3 next week, that's what Paul's going to start to discuss right now. He's, he's said all of these kind of false teachings that you might be dealing with, you, you have to understand how insufficient they are. Now, let me talk to you about what this really looks like, what this spiritual life really looks like, this resurrected life. So that's what we're going to get to next week in the uh, beginning of chapter 3.